Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. This is Stacey Francis, and today we're going to be speaking with John Yakos, specifically talking about the myths we know we've all heard from either our girlfriends, others, or thought ourselves about litigation. We're going to be busting through all of these myths, including helping you understand the best way to reduce expenses, reduce the amount of time it takes to get through the divorce process, and everything you need to know about litigation. Our guest today is John Yakos, a dear friend of mine and someone I extremely highly respect. He's a lifelong New Yorker with almost 30 years of legal experience. He has his own firm, actually not far from ours, uh, down here downtown, and he exclusively focuses on matrimonial law as well as family law. Uh, He started his career working on some really tough cases, um, cases that focused on child abuse, focused on neglect. It was in the height of the crack academic. So you can only imagine after years in the trenches what John has seen and the trauma that he's been able to help his clients through. He's passionate about the work he does. He absolutely loves Brooklyn and actually a lot of his clients hail from Brooklyn. He actually lives out in Brooklyn in uh, the Prospect Lefferts Garden area and enjoys traveling sports. And something that you may not know about him, he's one of the smartest horse racing fanatics I've ever met, being able to really translate hundreds of numbers about everything between their last race to their age to more numbers less than I've ever even seen in a financial plan and translate that into choosing the winning horse. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our podcast here today. But most importantly, Thanks for tuning in. Get your pen and paper out. Get ready to learn because we're going to be going through the top myths we all have about litigation that we need to bust. Today, we're all about Mythbusters. So welcome to Financially Ever After. Today, we have our special guest, John Yakos, and he's going to be talking about a topic that you most likely have never really thought about before, and that is really focusing on the dirty dozen misconceptions about litigation. And I know that I myself have some myths that I think I've bought into to believe. So I'm really excited about this conversation because I know that I'm going to be probably having some myths busted um, by the time that we finish up today. And really excited to have you here, John. Thank you for for joining us today. Well, Stacey, thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to to discuss this topic. We're going to have a lot of fun because, you know, litigation... uh, there are so many beliefs about it, but what made you decide to really dive into the myths about litigation and start to, you know, overcome and bust and dispel those? 
Right. Well, I really feel there's a need to dispel and correct the misconceptions and misunderstandings related to the family court and divorce process. And these misconceptions and misunderstandings come about through my discussions with my clients, statements by other professionals, and uh, oftentimes incorrect online information that's provided to clients. And I often hear this with my clients when I meet with them. It's kind of like going on to WebMD when you have a cold and walking away thinking that maybe you have cancer or something. Exactly. Like I know, <laughs> I know not to any longer put my symptoms into WebMD because the answers are typically really scary. And you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot of information out there on the web that doesn't really explain this right. Why, why do our listeners need to know what's right and wrong about litigation as far as their their beliefs? What's the context, would you say? It's important when people are faced with their legal issues related to either their relationships or their children or both, that they be armed with information. It's very important that this information is used to guide them through the process with as little damage as possible to the family. And Mm -hmm. that's a vitally important aspect of this. A person needs all access to every tool in the toolbox. Um, And I want to empower your listeners with respect to this information. Now, as a practitioner, my goal is to help my clients get them from where they are currently Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. the resolution of their legal issue, what I call point A to point B. And my clients cannot really make these important decisions along the way without having accurate understanding of their legal options. Uh, As an experienced litigator, I have a very broad sample size of my cases. I have my own case experience to draw on. I have discussions with other professionals in their cases. I have observed cases. Oftentimes you're sitting in court Mm -hmm. and you're waiting for your case to be called and you're observing the judge or other cases. And uh, that gives you a broad understanding of what might happen in any case with respect to litigation. And also as a uh, seasoned and experienced practitioner, uh, you're obligated to review and understand the the law. Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly reading the case law. So you're getting the perspective of all of those experiences as a practitioner and a litigator. Clients, on the other hand, have their own case mm-hmm. and they have anecdotal information from others, which is often not accurate. Even you know, when you talk to your, your friends or you go online, their specific cases and a case different from yours mm-hmm. might have a very different outcome, even if they're factually similar. Yeah. So it's very important to talk to someone, a litigator, in this case, if you're anticipating or involved in litigation, with respect to what the outcomes possibly are and what the misconceptions are. Also, litigation is only one option available. And as I'll describe, I think that litigation should probably be a last result. Um, even though I'm an experienced litigator and my bread and butter is litigation, people should always contemplate and consider alternative dispute resolution. In that context, I'm specifically and primarily talking about mediation, collaborative law as an option, and the use of other professionals such as a parent coordinator, even in the context of litigation. It must be said, I'm a very strong proponent of uh, what I'll call ADR, for the mm-hmm. purpose of this discussion. And ADR is alternative Alternative dispute, dispute resolution. resolution. And it's the, the, yeah. the context that I talk about, mediation, collaborative law, the use of yeah. other professionals which, who might help you through the process. And I have very positive and powerful results, even during highly contentious litigation. And as an experienced litigator, I might be the best salesperson for ADR. <laughs> um, so, Well, I know. I think, it, I think it also says a lot, John, and how, I mean, you're one of the most honest and ethical people I've, I've ever met. And 
you know, you coming out as primarily a litigator, right? And I know your firm also offers mediation and, and things like that, but, you know, primarily as a litigator to say, this may not be the first best step for everyone. As a matter of fact, Stacey, I, I come out in just the opposite way. Try to try to use try every others. other alternative first yeah. and use litigation as a last resort. Because, so question, question yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. When does someone know that the process they're using, the ADR process, whether it's mediation or collaborative or whatever it might be, that it's not a good fit and they need to go to that next step of litigation? Right. That's an interesting question. There are a couple different ways in which you can determine whether it's a good fit or not. One of which is whether ADR is appropriate fit to begin with, whether there be a history of domestic violence, whether there's a failure in transparency between the couple. Not Um, disclosing all the assets, there being some... Assets and other things. Assets and other things. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Whether there's a history of the parties being able to abide by their agreements, whether they be formal or informal. Those individuals, and domestic violence is unfortunately, I can't say common, but it's an issue that is dealt with more often than a lot of people think uh, who are not in this system, in this process. Those individuals that I just described, may not be candidates for ADR from the get-go. Yeah. The other individuals who have attempted ADR, and I'll get to this uh, as one of my misconceptions, may enter into ADR both in good faith, both in an attempt to resolve all of the legal issues before them, and it just may not work out. For those individuals, you might have to go to another step, the, the uh, second step if necessary might be litigation. It doesn't necessarily even discount it for those individuals who commence with litigation first. It doesn't even discount the possibility of going to mediation during the process of litigation. Mm -hmm. There actually is, uh, I practice in New York City. There is a pilot project with respect to mediation that is now uh, being utilized by the court system. So there are cases in litigation that are referred to mediators. So I think that's a a great alternative. That's interesting. And I think this is a myth that we've just busted that it's either all or nothing. You're either doing litigation Mm. or you're doing mediation. But what you're saying is that you can for certain parts or all push into mediation to solve them with that support and come back to your representing attorney that might be a litigator. Absolutely. Again, you know, it's not like it's black or white. You can use all of these different tools, you know, essentially that toolbox. Exactly. That's why I use that uh, description of you need all the tools. That's interesting. I I will be honest. That's something that I totally didn't quite realize is that you can move in and out to serve the needs of, and it might even be such that you're comfortable mediating the children in custody, but maybe not for the finances. Right. And I think that most people have the same understanding that you do with respect to this, that they don't understand that there is complex connection and interaction between the possibility of litigation and other forms of alternative dispute resolution as we've yeah. been defining it. I've had tremendous success recently in my cases that I'll call litigated cases with the assistance of a parent coordinator in the context of custodial issues. It's just been tremendous in terms of mm-hmm. the results. Um, and tell me the role that a parent coordinator can play in the process of 
litigation. Okay. So oftentimes when you're entered into litigation or even pre-litigation, there's it's a complicated issue to describe what I'm talking about because sometimes when I'm using the term litigation, I'm also talking about the period prior to actually being in court where there's been something filed, usually a uh, divorce action, and you may be negotiating over that long period of time uh, mm-hmm. And you either may go to court or not, depending on whether it ends up being a contested or uncontested divorce uh, mm-hmm. action. So if you reach an impasse oftentimes and you believe that it might just be better for the parties themselves to discuss, it's usually custodial issues, with a trained parent coordinator, mm-hmm. it might unlock the problem. Yeah. You know, I think it is true that when even in the context of having lawyers in a conference room with their clients, there is this perception, especially the lay people, the clients, that it's more adversarial. The lawyers may not feel it necessarily because this is what we do, but the clients and the parties may feel that. And if they're in the room with a parent coordinator, it may not be a situation where they feel that it's as adversarial. And these parent coordinators are extremely skilled and experienced practitioners, Mm -hmm. and they will be able to be sensitive to this not only the psychological dynamic, the emotional component, and all the other aspects of the experience with respect to what their objective is, which is to unlock those seemingly intractable problems that occur. So again, I I can't say too much about the use of uh, parent coordinators and other forms of the tools uh, during litigation. Question for you. When we think about the process of litigation, the typical myth most people have is that you hire your lawyer and you're going to court next week and the judge is going to make all their decisions and in three weeks you're going to be done. So (laughs) what is the process of family court, of litigation? What does that look like and what could people realistically expect? Right. So this is a big myth. Uh, It's not one of my 12 that I've indicated, but it's important to understand what the litigation process is because there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding, misconceptions with respect to the process. And I think a lot of people do have that same um, misunderstanding that you're describing. And I do have to say that I am a New York litigator, so therefore I'm, to a certain degree, uh, describing the process in New York State might be different in other states. For example, um, each case is fact-specific, and um, you have many different aspects of litigation that come before the court. So most of the time, we're thinking about divorce litigation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Other times, there might be individuals who have children who are not married, Mm-hmm. Right. There might be situations. And would that be family court then? Exclusively family court with okay. respect to those issues. And yep. those issues are custodial issues and support issues. Mm-hmm. With respect to married couples, uh, they may not uh, want to go directly to Supreme Court. They may want to resolve certain issues in family court. And that's a strategic consideration that a lot of practitioners ignore, that you can actually, in the context of uh, a married couple, you can go to family court and resolve custody, or you can resolve support issues, and it might be simpler. It's a very complicated issue. It's subject of another podcast, but uh, that is a very important issue with respect to the strategic considerations with respect to a married couple and those ancillary issues. You would have to go to Supreme Court to get divorced or to resolve equitable distribution issues. And then the other group of people with respect to this procedural consideration are individuals who have 
been divorced already, post-judgment cases. And typically you so have- So essentially couples coming back with a disagreement after they've been divorced. Yes, it's either a disagreement or one of two things. Either they're seeking a modification of typically of the divorce agreement Yep. Or they're seeking a violation. Someone isn't, according to the allegations, abided by the terms yep. of the agreement. So in that context, there is what's known as concurrent jurisdiction between Supreme Court and family court. Um, you have the option. Uh, it's a, based on you know your specific circumstances and considerations related to that. Uh, oftentimes people, I think more often than not, they go to family court, frankly, in yeah. post-judgment cases for a couple, a lot of different reasons. That's the context in terms of the interplay between the two court systems. But I so think that's a myth, too, that at least most of the people I talk to, um, clients, they don't realize that there are two different venues that I, I, you could possibly use. And maybe this isn't the right time, and we can maybe add a, a link to it. You tell me, but what court might be best for you, I assume it's based on your situation, maybe even your economic situation as well? Very much so, yes. Um, in part, generally speaking, obviously there are exceptions, generally speaking, the perception is that it's less expensive to litigate in family court. Yep. Um, I can tell you in Kings County Family Court, there was an agency that I used to work for called the Children's Law Center yeah. uh, that is uh, assigned as attorneys for children in custody cases oftentimes. And they are free uh, because they're supported by funding That's from the great. state. Um, if you go to Supreme Court, on the other hand, in the same county, Kings County, generally speaking, the parties will be paying an, another attorney to represent the children. Uh, so that's a consideration. So I'm not yeah, saying it's yeah. better for one or the other. Another consideration oftentimes is if you're seeking child support, even in the context of a divorce, this has come up recently. There is a consideration with respect to procedural differences between family court and Supreme Court with respect to child support awards on a temporary basis during the course of possible litigation, whether it be family court or Supreme Court. So for instance, in family court, uh, the mandate is that when you go and you have your first appearance on a child support case, even for a married couple, the support magistrate will issue a temporary order. Now, it's pursuant to a free filing of a petition in family court. So oh. you have no out-of-pocket expenses, right? <laughs> to be able to get that done. Yeah, That's exactly. Amazing. So if you go to Supreme Court, you filed your divorce action. One, generally speaking, you have to file a motion, which can be very expensive yep. with respect to child support. Two... It takes a long time for the court, generally speaking, to decide it. So in the interim, what happens is oftentimes uh, individuals are almost forced to agree to uh, an award of mm -hmm. child support that's inadequate and inappropriate. Just to get something. Just to get it done. Yeah. Because a lot of times the recipient yeah. uh, is in a catch-22, wow. right? What happens is the payor will say, I'll give you X. X is usually half of what they should be paying then the, the court themselves sometimes put pressure on the payee parent yeah. and say, well, okay, you can take it. Or you, you can know, leave it. Or yeah. you can leave it. Yeah. And it's it's a difficult situation because otherwise the court's going to make the argument, well, I guess if you don't take it, it's like, I guess you didn't need it. Yeah. You know, so you're you're really in a difficult situation. Wow. And they, you know, they'll tell clients of mine, um, well, you can take it. It's only temporary. Don't worry about it. We'll change it when we decide. But inertia yeah. applies. And what happens is ultimately you're kind of stuck with it. And, and being and stuck with it could be for years. Yeah, and it sets a precedent. And Absolutely. I think it's really powerful because what we're realizing is that there are other options. And family court, for those that that works for, is definitely less expensive and could be faster. Um, and I'm also hearing that 
this is not easy. No, it's not easy <laughs> it's at not all. not easy. <laughs> and you need to hire the right lawyer, right? Absolutely. The right lawyer that has spent years and years um, in litigation and working for clients to, to, you know, make the process move as quickly and as cost effectively. So how do you hire a litigation, you know, attorney? And there are a lot of myths out there. I mean, there are some people that you say an attorney that specializes in litigation and they see the devil in a pitchfork, right? Right. And and Josh, you know, John, I think you're a perfect example of you're one of like the nicest people. And just for everybody on the podcast, um, John and I were um, up at a conference for uh, the Matrimonial Bar Association for New York up in Saratoga, and we went to the races. And John sat down and we're teaching myself and a few other people how to read all the race stats and how to, you know, make bets on the horses. And, and I have to tell you, I'm a numbers person. Right. I have no problem with numbers. It's my job. This was so far beyond me and the patience you had and so much so that uh, John actually didn't bet because right. he was so busy <laughs> teaching us that he couldn't actually go through the stats himself to be able to make the bets. But obviously that is a, a myth. But talk a little bit more about some of those myths of, sure. uh, of uh, hiring a matrimonial uh, attorney. Well, thank you. for. I had a great time up at Saratoga. And uh, I don't know if you knew, but I did go back the next day oh, for myself. Did. Good for you. Because I have to tell you, I felt a little bit guilty for you. I no, no. Bad. I really enjoyed it because it's not... Uh, you know, going to the races is not something that most people do. Um, and it is, it's an obscure yeah. piece of information, you know, that it, you have. And I was, it was my joy to share it with people there. Yeah. So was, I really had a great time. Um, so, yeah, so the misconceptions related to hiring a litigation attorney could be the subject of a podcast in and of itself. Um, I think the primary one is when individuals are looking for litigation attorneys is that the litigation itself is going to be an all-out brawl. Mm-hmm. So you need, as they say on TV, when these TV the attorneys are advertising, you need a pit bull mm-hmm. or you need a bulldog, right? The truth is, because of the unique nature of family law and matrimonial litigation, you really need someone who's going to present a reasonable argument, a practical mm-hmm. argument to the deciders. The deciders are in large part the judge, could be the attorney for the children, could be third-party experts who are involved, for instance, forensic evaluators, who will appreciate and respond to a reasonable argument. Much better than a Than someone who's yelling, screaming, making bad arguments. And also you should hire a lawyer who can discuss these concepts of reasonableness with their client and attempt to make sure that their client understand that um, being reasonable and being considered reasonable is the best posture and um, they have to also understand um, that the children's best interest, as defined uh, broadly, is the most important consideration in litigation. And you have to have an attorney who understands that and is sensitive to that. And yeah. also you have to have the attorney make sure that the client knows that. That is the most important messaging. You also need an attorney who can work well with other attorneys and act professionally and ethically. Um, so when you get a pit bull or a bulldog um, attorney, generally they don't fall into that category. It doesn't mean that, you know, as an attorney who is acting reasonably that you roll over. 
but you shouldn't create barriers to resolution because of your aggressiveness or your nastiness. Essentially you, creating problems out of things absolutely. that don't and, need to be. And you could be very effective as an advocate, yeah. but not your client. You are not acting as your client. So don't, you know, you're supposed to basically pull up your client yeah. and, uh, and give them the understanding of what's going to be uh, successful in litigation. And it is those two components. Additionally, your litigation attorney should be what I call strategically nimble, uh, which allows them to adapt to their approach based on the change in circumstance. So for instance, your case might have multiple judges. It's, it's more frequent than most people really? understand. Oh, very common. So you can start off with, let's say, Judge Drager, and you can end up with someone else. Absolutely. Judges are reappointed, especially in family court, but in Supreme Court as well. I have a case that's pending now in Supreme Court. Yeah, um, your entire strategy could have to change on a dime. Absolutely. And you can't just have a locked in, this is what I do, this is the only thing I can do and do. You have, to, you have to be nimble, Yeah. right? And you have to uh, adapt to changes like multiple judges, the appointment of an attorney for the child, or oftentimes a change in your opposing attorney. Uh, so the, yes, yeah, so you're the, right. the ability, counsel. exactly. Yeah, the ability yeah. to st be strategically nimble depends on your level of experience, your knowledge of the law, your knowledge of the court, and your fluidity of thought and your approach. Yeah. Uh, those are all important. It's also very important to understand human psychology and have a high level of emotional intelligence, especially yeah. in our field. This field is unique. It's not personal injury. It's not commercial yep. litigation or real estate or trusts and estates. Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with people on a long-term basis at a very deep level with issues that are very important. So you really have to have all of those skill sets to really be successful. Now, another myth with respect to hiring um, an advocate or a lawyer in litigation is that you need the biggest and most expensive law firm to represent you. That is a myth. It is, but I have to tell you, somehow people feel like, you know, if I don't pay, I mean, up to what, $900 an hour? It could I, be I mean, more. It could be more, right? It is more. I'm um, just telling you. Like, <laughs> you know, then I'm not, they call it lawyering up. Right. That, that's a, a verb uh, right. for everybody listening, calling, you know, lawyering up. Tell, tell me a little about that, especially sure. if you're fearful about your husband because he's a bulldog and a bully. Right. So I understand that because these issues are extremely important to individuals, primarily issues of their children. Mm -hmm. Also, money issues can be extremely important because this is your life. This is your yeah. future with respect to the financial issues and the resolution of financial issues. So I understand that you want to go to the attorneys who are perceived to be the best. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, frankly, if I was in that situation, I might do it too and just check them out. Um, but oftentimes um, you can have a great lawyer um, who is able to resolve what I call the five issues of a divorce when you have children, custody, child support, maintenance, equitable distribution, uh, the potential for counsel fees, yep. right? You can resolve yep. those issues um, and you don't have to pay uh, top dollar as it were and still get great advocacy. Now in that situation, um, in certain areas, um, you have what I, I'm not gonna say a less complex case, right? It may be a situation where the parties are W-2 employees, Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of cash. They don't own their own yeah. businesses. That might be a component where their asset portfolio is not 
so complicated where there's a lot of uh, appraisals necessary with respect to that and juggling. Um, so in those considerations, definitely go check out as many lawyers um, as you feel appropriate and uh, yeah. provide you comfort. Yeah. Um, but don't necessarily think you need the biggest, most expensive to do to have a great outcome. Um, yeah. I think the most important quality is, the, or one of the most important qualities, is the attorney's familiarity with the court. Yeah. Um, and, and that's very important because the, and the litigants should ask these questions of any potential attorney with respect to the familiarity with a specific court. Do they know the judges? Do they know the other attorneys who practice? Having home field advantage is vital. And I think that's uh, above anything else, more important than, um, you know, who you hire necessarily. Obviously, you want a great attorney representing you, but that component of it is extremely important. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've had circumstances where people have wanted to hire me where it's a, a, a court where I'm not necessarily familiar because I generally practice in New York City. Um, and I'll say, you know, it might be better. You know, I'll tell them it might be better to find someone who has home field advantage because yeah. they're going to be able to talk to the other attorneys in a way that uh, a, an outsider lawyer won't mm -hmm. be able to. They'll have a relationship with the judge. The judge has the experience and they'll understand from other cases who this person is and whether they're being reasonable or not and, and what's going on with the case generally. They'll get an ins the judges will get an insight from the lawyers because they have an understanding who the lawyer is. Yep. Right? Um, and the second assumption I think that a lot of people have is there's a, there's a great difference between litigation and other forms of dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think it's interesting because we, we talked a little bit and touched on that, that number one, they aren't necessarily so different and that you can, you know, touch upon each of them through the process. But you're right that it's either mediation and there's flowers and fluffy, you know, fluffy clouds. Right. Or, you know, it's litigation and it's a path of thorns and, you know, sticks and, and rocks and, and everything in between. Right. It depends a lot on the individuals and what they bring to the litigation. Right. Yeah. Um, to a certain degree, I consider litigation to be a form of structured negotiation yeah. um, that a lot of times when a person files a divorce action, they may not even go to court for a very long time, if at all. Right. The strong goal is to stay out of court mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons, which I'll describe later. Um, and what you try to do is you negotiate with the other side. And the way you do that is reach out to them. You might have settlement conferences. You're exchanging a lot of financial, primarily financial information. Uh, so a lot goes on with respect to that aspect of it. And I think clients are generally surprised that that's really what it is. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're going straight to court. In no, fact, not at all. You may never. Right. If, if and, and oftentimes... Uh, I'm involved in cases where it becomes an uncontested case, where through strong effort by the attorneys and the parties, um, we're able to resolve the issues that, you know, mm -hmm. presumptively force them to go to court as opposed to resolve it through mediation. Um, I have a, a belief that the lawyers involved in litigation process should have a, a legal Hippocratic oath, meaning do no harm, right? Love it. And then the process can almost be collaborative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and oftentimes you have to find another attorney. Hopefully you have another attorney on the other side that has the same approach and perspective. Um, the biggest problem with respect to litigation is not the fighting or the possibility of animosity between the parties at the end of the process. Um, the, I feel that the biggest problem is the vast discretion uh, in the process. That's huge. The length of time it takes is also 
um, shockingly long for a lot of people, yeah. uh, losing control of the process as mm -hmm. opposed to ADR, and also the expense. Mm -hmm. um, so that brings me to the next assumption where litigation is more expensive than ADR. That is generally true, actually, but it doesn't need to be expensive. Um, again, it depends on what litigation is, what the form of litigation, because when I say litigation, I'm not exclusively saying divorce actions. I'm yeah. saying all these other components, which yeah. may be uh, post-judgment, family court, uh, if you're unmarried, or even if it's post-judgment. Uh, for example, I just finished a case where we settled custody on the very first court appearance. Uh, shocking. And credit to the parties on that case. Uh, this was a, the facts of this case. This could have been a, a very long and expensive litigation process. So for these individuals, it was great. Yeah. You know? And it's difficult to compare the expense uh, between litigation and mediation because it's more or less apples and oranges comparing the people who go to mediation yeah. and the people who go through the first off through litigation process, right? I mean, a real sample, which I, I'm not aware of anything, uh, that's ever been done like this in terms of a study is what would the outcome be for the people who go to mediation first if they litigated first? That's a true comparison analytically. Yeah. Um, so it's so it's difficult to to say yeah. that litigation is the problem. It's really, you know, the the individuals who are going to litigation yeah. to a certain degree um, have intractable issues, generally speaking. Something that uh, I've heard from uh, clients of ours that have come to us and the mediation process or collaborative process has not worked. It's broken down. And the words that they use are, I wasted my money for the last 18 months on mediation. I've had it. Is it really a waste of money? Not at all. Because um, um, that's a big myth. That oh, absolutely. I that's, just wasted. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a, a tremendous myth. And it's easy to dispel oftentimes with clients when I explain this. And the explanation is that... In any litigation, whether it be divorce or otherwise, you may have, say, 10 issues, mm -hmm. right? Through the process of mediation, you might be able to resolve eight of them. You're left with two, right? You've that's, narrowed the issues. That's pretty, pretty good. That's great. Average, that's great. Because right? you've done it expeditiously, yeah. efficiently. Yeah. That's great. You have two issues to resolve as long as people don't back out from their, from their, from their mediation before. agreements, right? Yeah. And also, you're narrowing the issues. So you're... You're getting an understanding through the mediation process of what the other uh, side uh, is saying with respect to the issues that are unresolved. So yeah. you get a you get a way to focus the the litigation for the judge. So mm -hmm. you come to the judge, hey judge, we here got are my these. two issues. Exactly, here are the two issues. We've already done this, which I mean, I imagine again, you're presenting in front of the judge a very reasonable client. Right? Let's hope so. <laughs> In the sense that, you know, look, we, we've already figured out the eight out of the right. ten. It's just these two. Yes. This is the idealized objective. Yeah. You know, and yeah. oftentimes, even if they're not in mediation, uh, you can have and often expected to have prior to the first court appearance, which is called a preliminary conference, expected to have what we call a four-way conference where the attorneys and their clients will sit down and conduct something like a mediation. Like everybody Non-adversarial, just say, hey, what are the issues? Where are you? We'll tell you where we are. Uh, where's the common ground? Can we knock off some of these issues? Can we resolve them? Yeah. So you're, again, you're, you're in the process of a quasi-structured negotiation similar to mediation, although the parties have their attorneys yeah. there representing them and, and speaking for them. And you, you bring up a really good point that litigation does not always have to be adversarial. Correct. Right. And that's um, a, a very 
strong and profound uh, misconception, I think. Uh, first, there's a couple things that people should know. Very few cases in court go to trial, right? I mean, uh, it's a small number. Very small. I mean, I've heard between they may, they may two and five percent. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. And there's and so, at somewhere along the line, you're going to reach an agreement. And there's only two ways to end a case, right? The only two ways are with an agreement, mm-hmm. could happen anytime, mm-hmm. or after a judge has rendered a decision, and when they've heard all the evidence, yeah, all the exhibits have been submitted into evidence and testimony under cross-examination. And usually, um, to tell you the truth in those cases, um, it's a, it, the decision is a fait accompli. Like people know what's going to happen. And it's yeah. usually, yeah. unfortunately, related to uh, someone who has uh, superior financial ability to litigate or uh, oftentimes narcissists who just don't want to agree, can't reach a decision, you yeah. know, can't reach an doesn't agreement. Matter. Doesn't damn, matter what they're damn doing. Damn me exactly. or damn you. So, and if it damns me, who cares because I want to damn you. So, so you know, in those circumstances, yeah. you're just going, almost going through the motions and you know what the results are going to be. But, um, you know, off the vast majority, you're going to reach an agreement. So, and that, yeah. that an agreement by its very nature contemplates compromise, yeah. right? So I often hear, uh, third, with respect to the adver- adversarial processes, that litigation is, and then you can fill in the negative attribute, <laughs> right? Litigation yeah, is full of blank. confrontation. Litigation yeah. is full of false accusations. Yeah. Uh, well, that may be true, but in reality, litigation is what you bring to it. So and if you're- you make it. And, and right, make and what, if your approach is somewhat like mediation, then in, in the context of litigation, and you approach it, and the parties approach it that way, the attorneys approach it that way, then you may have a positive outcome. Yeah, I, you, know? I, you know, the way I think about litigation is uh, it's almost like scaffolding on a building, right? It's, um, you know, the building may not need the support, mm-hmm. but the scaffolding is there if, God forbid, the building does need it while they're making renovations. That's a very repairs. good way to think about it, I think, yeah. You know, um, you know, a lot of times people will believe that the fastest way to the end of this is litigation. Is that true, or I would have to say generally true. That is not true. Generally not uh, true. Generally not true because um, litigation is usually an attempt to resolve issues that are more. Uh, difficult to resolve. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they've been through the mediation process or some sort of negotiation process. So you're you're kind of uh, trying to deal with these difficult issues that have already been vetted. They're, they're coming with in to, with maybe more issues, more complexity, more conflict than... Right. Okay. And, and also the court system is very busy, mm-hmm. at least in New York City. Um, the judges do a great job. Everyone in the system works very hard to expedite the cases and make the system work efficiently. Uh, but there's an overwhelming number of cases. So the time frame between court appearances could be two months, could yeah. be more. Yeah. Um, so it's not unusual with a divorce, a contested divorce, to um, you know to take years. And unfortunately, uh, it can happen quick, more quickly than that because again, your reach, your attempt is to reach an agreement, which is that overwhelming number of resolutions. But I would say that uh, clients of mine, I tell them, uh, be prepared because litigation is more of a marathon than a sprint.
That's um, important to know. Because yeah. <laughs> if you go out too fast, you're not making that's it to right. the end. Yeah, you have and to slow and steady. <laughs> slow and steady. I mean, that, that's how I run a marathon. Trust that's me, <laughs> slow. Uh-huh. <laughs> and people are passing me, definitely the first half. But the second half, I then end up passing those people because they're, you know, dragging their right leg or, or whatever. Right. Um, you know, so... the. The, the thing I would love to hear, too, is that sometimes people will believe that in litigation, the judge is going to protect them. No, that's, yeah, that's The judge a... is going to make everything okay. That, um, and that's not necessarily the case. Right. There, there are a couple myths about the judge in terms of uh, the clients that I have to spell right yeah. off the bat. Um, one of which is exactly that, that the, oftentimes clients believe that a judge will see the reasonableness yeah. in their position. And oftentimes they say, well, how come the judge doesn't understand this? Yeah. Right. And it's a function to a certain degree of the process. Yeah. Um, and it's a function of what a judge is able to say or decide officially, formally on the record. Right. So oftentimes and, and, and a true understanding of every single piece of the case, which right. is really n- not possible. The other thing I've heard people, uh, women say, you know, if that judge hears what a son of a bitch my husband is, he will definitely award me X, Y and Z. If he if he hears how how bad he mistreated me, not realizing that, I mean, Jersey Housewives is, you know, like light entertainment for these judges. They've, you know, they've heard everything. So it's not necessarily that they're going to hear your case and say, wow, this is unbelievable. This is awful. Um, I'm going to protect you. And here you take you take 60 percent of the assets. Right. Um, That's a very good point, um, because it is your case or a person's case is contextual. Oftentimes these judges are hearing issues of abuse and neglect of children, severe issues of abuse and neglect of children. They're hearing severe issues of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you'd be surprised, I think most people would be surprised, the level of addictive behavior, substance abuse that occurs in everyone's family, your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what they hear. Yeah. And domestic violence is unfortunately more common than many people understand. And that's the context in which the judges hear these issues. Now, the other piece is the judges may hear the arguments of the lawyers, right? Primarily, the lawyers are talking. Clients don't understand that they don't get to talk, really. Yeah. Uh, what happens is the lawyers will be talking on their behalf. The judge, and it may just be what's known as lawyer uh, attorney arguments, right? Where a judge is not necessarily deciding something. And there's no, quote, evidence before the judge. Evidence is testimony under cross-examination, documents that are entered as exhibits. And then a judge has something to make, to render a decision because they're applying the facts to the law, right? And in that case, it doesn't happen on your conference date. And that's what the clients sometimes don't understand. That's a misunderstanding. It's absolutely right. It's like if they heard what I, you know, what I know, they'll understand it. You know, so it's partly that, that they hear it. And oftentimes when you'll go in the back or a conference with other, the other attorney and the judge, the judge will tip their hand a little bit and Mm -hmm. tell you, okay, this sounds like this, you know, based on what I heard, you know, again, they're extremely hardworking professionals. So they're not going to say prejudice the case in one way or the other, but they'll give you an understanding to help you guide a resolution. 
Um, so that's something that clients really need to understand right up front. Yep. That you know their day in court is at a trial. That trial is going to occur two years from now, right? Or sometimes in the context of a motion. Yeah. But there might be a hearing with respect to an interim motion yeah. for some reason, but it doesn't happen that frequently, but it yeah. might. You know, and those are the circumstances where the client is able to tell their story, as they yeah. like to say. You know, and, so. you know, resorting to that day in court, you also are giving up complete control, right? right? Um, yes. You're letting a stranger make decisions potentially about your kids. Right potentially about the rest of your financial life. Well, this ties into another major misconception, which is relates to litigation and in the context, alternative dispute resolution, or ADR, yep. um, that you, know, um, you do lose control in litigation because you're relying on a hardworking uh, judge, basically. Over, a stranger, third person, third party person to make a decision for you who may hear a piece of something and, and you don't know yeah. what how they're taking it. And also um, with respect to the attorneys for children, you know, they're very influential and important yeah. individuals who are involved in custody cases. So, um, you know, I think a, a myth is really, one of the myths is that uh, alternative dispute resolution sometimes will result in a better outcome. Um, that's a complicated issue. Yeah. Um, typically, you know, you have the mediator and the parties in the room. You don't, it de- and it depends in large part on the power dynamic between the parties and the transparency of the disclosure yeah. and the quality of the mediator. So it's very important in that context to have a strong advocate as a consulting attorney or advising you in that process. And um, I th- that's important. There are a good number of people that go through the mediation process and don't realize that they should have a separate attorney just for them as a consulting attorney. Absolutely. I, I, you know, really powerful. There are uh, a large number of very, very good mediators, and the ones I most respect are the ones who are telling the parties. They're telling the go parties, get go get a lawyer to consult. It's not. It's not something that it should be. It should be fully transparent, you know. Yeah. And they should be talking to someone again to become an informed consumer of the law, to yeah. know their rights, to empower them in that process. Yeah. And it's especially true, unfortunately. When there is a power differential, when someone one yep. one of the parties is more manipulative than the other, um, another another assumption with respect to this, and it ties into alternative dispute resolution, is that um, the alternative dispute resolution, as opposed to litigation, is going to result in a much better agreement. Now, I have a unique perspective on this. I see the agreements that the mediators draft because I work as a consulting yep. attorney with mediation, and mm-hmm. I love doing that. Um, but also, I represent parties in post-judgment modifications and violations of those same agreements. So I see the back end. Yeah. I see what when, happens. When, th- when things go wrong. When things go wrong and why they go wrong from a lawyer's perspective. Like, what is it about the agreement that the parties just couldn't rely on the agreement to, to guide them through a resolution? And in part, any agreement should provide clarity and, and a clear understanding with respect to the rights and responsibilities for the parties themselves so they can follow the agreement. But also any judge or lawyer who has to look yep. at it later on and say, okay, this is what is going on. This is what should happen. I'm going to yep. modify it this way. You did commit a violation. So many times I find the agreements to be aspirational. Yep. Right. They're they're saying, let's hope that the parties do this. In legal terms, it's called precatory. Right. So uh, it's basically wish language. 
And a lot of times you'll see in the, the mediation agreements, parties will endeavor to, and then they'll right, say whatever. Right, not, but it doesn't really say, look, and I would suggest, look for the word shall. Yeah. If shall is in the agreement, then I think that's uh, yeah. helpful with respect to that. Sometimes the aspirational language creates vagueness and ambiguity. I'm, and, I'm sure it reads beautifully, but yeah. you know, similar to, I mean, what you're saying, that's why you need a consulting attorney. Absolutely. To be that second pair of eyes to make sure that you're protecting, you know, the, the cost of a consulting attorney will save you thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in the future when you find yourself, God forbid, going back into court because the agreement wasn't written. And the challenge with some mediators, some mediators are lawyers. Yes, that's some, correct. Some are not, right. right? So that's important to know for you. And it, you know, I, I liken it to someone tells you you need to have back surgery. Well, you go to a surgeon, but you most likely are going to go for a second opinion before you make that decision. I would say this is as important as going under the knife for back surgery, this is an agreement that's going to impact the rest of your life. So, you know, saving a few thousand dollars by not getting a consulting attorney is just really, you know. Oh, it, it's essential. I think it's essential. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, to the extent that the consulting attorney can provide that guidance uh, with their experience and expertise to say, okay, this provision sounds great, yeah. you know, which is, it is good. I think it does have an impact on the parties aspirationally. But you really have to say, like, how does this play out based on my experience? How have I seen these post-judgment or yeah. um, other violation or modification disputes with yeah. respect to this particular language? Where and might with, this go wrong? Yeah, exactly. And, and you're a troubleshooter in that, in that sense. Yeah. Now, finally, with respect to this particular issue, the courts themselves act in certain circumstances as loco parentis or in the shoes of the parents and in, in looking at the agreements. Uh, as it relates to a child's best interest, for instance. Um, and, you know, sometimes the, the parties can agree to almost anything, right? But to the extent it deviates from what the law provides, then you'll have the court reviewing it. And sometimes these, the agreements are rejected yeah. Because they deviate so strongly. Now the example. So no child support, and there are children. Exactly. That's the, the right. classic that, example where you have typically exactly where you have a fifty-fifty residential custodial arrangement, and a basic child support is premised on, uh, legally speaking, premised on that residential custodial arrangement and relative income levels. And sometimes people in that circumstance like to net out their income. Um, and oftentimes it may be to the point where it's uh, the basic child support level is de minimis. Yeah. And sometimes I've seen it uh, in other cases, thankfully not mine, but uh, in other cases where uh, agreements are rejected because of that. You yeah. know? And, you're, and it's, it's kind of hit or miss. Again, it's this vast discretion yeah. and you submit an uncontested agreement. It has to be approved by the court to get divorced. Yeah. Um, and you don't really know what specifically the uh, individuals who are reviewing it will be, re you know, it's not always judges, it's sometimes referees, yeah. Yeah. Um, will be looking at to determine whether it's appropriate and in their capacity as yeah. standing in for the parent for a child or children, whether the agreement itself is uh, reasonable. And John, I want to make sure that we get to be able to have you share your information of how our listeners can reach you. But... Any other, I mean, there's so many myths, but another one that you feel like is really important that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think the last one I could talk about is that 
some clients believe that it's perceived to be a bad thing to change lawyers. Thank you for talking about this. Yeah. Right? That yeah, yeah. It, people make a judgment mm -hmm. that if you've changed lawyers, um, it's something wrong with you, not the lawyer. That's right. But it's interesting. No one makes that judgment um, if you change doctors or, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The first understanding that people have to have is oftentimes in family law and matrimony litigation, parties change their attorneys during the process, right? Yeah, so it's not this, just you. Other it's people not do you. this too. <laughs> this, this practice area is unique. The representation that we provide is not superficial, yeah. and the issues are vitally important. Now, establishing a trust relationship is paramount. Oftentimes, one party attempts to manipulate the other party with respect to their own lawyers and their representation. So they're undermining that trust mm -hmm. relationship. And you always have to think about that uh, when you're an attorney. Do you still have the trust relationship that's necessary? And it's, to a certain degree, unfortunately, a little bit of a hit or miss between the client and the attorney. And it oftentimes is, you know, you're a great lawyer, um, but, you know, I, I, think, I think I should go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, Thankfully, again, most parties are coming to me as the other lawyer, so it doesn't really happen that often. Uh, to tell you the truth, the court, the way courts look at it, they understand this. They know it. But yeah. the shorthand is two lawyers are okay, three, you start to think about the client as the problem. Okay. Uh, especially if the lawyers have the trust and confidence of the court. If it's someone, again, who has yeah, home field advantage, highly respected, who highly respected oh. has the experience, and the, and the judge knows that attorney, yeah. then they start to think about it. So that's something to think about, too. Don't you know, within within a sense of reasonableness, you can change lawyers, but don't go through four or five, six lawyers at a time. Which, so that's which is important to make sure that when you're hiring people that you you really do interview a few people. Oh, absolutely. To make sure and um, you know answer that question of, am I willing to spend the next couple of years with this person? That's vitally important, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. because it is unique. Again, it, it, yeah. the, the practice is unique, and that's one of the reasons that I'm yeah. in this profession and this specific practice area is because of the um, the relationship you have in terms of helping your clients yeah. in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Well, you have done so much myth busting here. In fact, there's a show called Mythbusters, and I feel like uh -huh. we could do like we could do like lawyer Mythbusters yeah, absolutely. now. Absolutely, create our own TV show. Yep. How do our listeners get a hold of you? Yes, so um, you can reach me by emailing me at john at yakoslaw.com. It's spelled J-O-H-N at yakos. That's Y-A-C-O-S-L-A-W, and that's uh, all one word. Great. And uh, also my website is yakoslaw.com. Great. And I can be reached by telephone as well. 212-587-9560 is the telephone number. Nice. And what we'll do for all of you listeners, uh, we'll make sure that we put uh, that information for John in the show notes. Um, and also some of the other resources that we talked about on the, the podcast here today. And again, thank you so much for joining us today, John. Um, I know... I'm walking out of here with a lot more information, and I can guarantee that our listeners are too. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome, and I'm very pleased to be here. And thank you for the opportunity to dispel some of these myths. And uh, this was just great. I really enjoyed it. 
Well, thank you for listening to Financially Ever After. Stay tuned. I'm going to be going through uh, the summary of what we talked about today and, more importantly, how you can start to get on top of your financial future if you do have questions about specifically what your life might look like, not only during but, but after the divorce process. And thank you again for tuning in. In just a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the main important takeaways from our podcast today with John Yakos. But before I do that, I want to give you a tip, a tool in your toolbox to help you get control and take agency over your financial future. And that's using what we call our second opinion service. It's looking at your entire financial picture, diving into all of your investment holdings and the myriad of accounts where they currently are, and giving you a global overview of how your money is working for you. Where there's duplication, where there are investments that are not serving you, where there might even be hidden fees. And trust me, unfortunately, we see that far too often. So please reach out for that uh, portfolio review, our second opinion. We would love to be able to provide that for you, again, for qualified individuals that can work with us on an ongoing basis. We typically work with clients that have a portfolio of a million dollars. And the reason why that minimum is so high is because a full team of financial analysts here might only be supporting 50 clients. So as you can imagine, unbelievable personal service, which is what we believe and know that you deserve. But let's get back to that podcast. We went through a lot of information today and the most important was really busting those myths about litigation. We learned that litigation is not a standalone, that you can push in and use mediation to resolve many issues to increase the speed of your case as well as reduce litigation costs. We also learned that when you're hiring a lawyer, it doesn't always serve you to hire that pit bull and that the most expensive lawyer on the block may not, and to be honest, most likely is not the best fit for your case. It's also important to know that you have a lawyer that's going to advocate for you, but that is also going to be reasonable and be able to essentially convince you to be reasonable. Because when you go to court, that day in court, talking to the judge is probably not going to happen. Because you see, when you go to court, it's more about your lawyer talking for you. Unfortunately, very rarely are you going to find you have the stand to tell all the dirty secrets, all of the mistreatment that your husband has put you through for many, many years. So if that's important to you, realize that it's not going to happen necessarily in court, and it might be better to find another venue to expose him. There's so many different myths, and I'm so happy that we tackled this subject because I know both you and me, I'm walking away with a lot more information. So most importantly, thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After and reach out to us for that second opinion because you deserve financial peace of mind. You can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. And you can also visit our website 
And well, it's pretty simple, www.francisfinancial.com. I wasn't so creative when I named the firm, but (laughs) there you go. Thanks for tuning in. Big hugs. And we'll be talking to you in about two weeks.